Okay, today I'm in Newmarket with Jamie Piggott. As, uh, thank you very much for um, agreeing to talk to us, Jamie. You're a successful bloodstock agent based in Newmarket. Now, is Newmarket still the place to be for a successful bloodstock agent? Hi, Simon. Yeah, look, I think uh, this is the home of horse racing, so it's uh, it's nice to be in the mix. And there, there's there's really a horse that I uh, that I get asked to do research on that that isn't far more than two miles from my doorstep so I'm quite lucky in that sense. Now you do gallop reports for potential private purchases and you do like first-hand updates and stuff and you try I've read that you try and sit on everything that you buy is that still the case? That's right yeah when I when I decided to be a bloodstock agent I there was a lot of people that said oh you've got to go into the stud side and and you've got to give up riding and I never really wanted to stop. Uh, when I was learning from other agents I still needed a way to make money, so I was still riding out anyway. And I just thought, you know, if I can combine these two things and provide it as an extra service for my owners, for my clients, be it sourcing horses or horses we've already bought, I can just give a bit of an added insight. Things like, uh, you know, if we think the horse could do with a different trip or a different ground. We also put the, the GoPro on the head and we can do speed analysis you know, we try not to get too in-depth with it, but it, if it's just something extra we can get, provide to the owners, because at the end of the day, they they do a lot for us. We're, we're only here because of their generosity and, and, and their, you know, their their investment in the sport, and they deserve as much back as possible, really. Is that something quite unique that you offer there? There wouldn't be many agents that, that would ride. Um, look, everyone has a different way of doing things, but... The way I do it is, is try and have as close a bond with the horse as possible. And if that can afford me something extra, then then all, all the more for it, you know. Right, we better get that, this out there. First of all, you've got one of the most famous and respected surnames in racing. Lester's your dad. That's right, yeah. Uh, so were you aware as a kid that you had a, you had a famous father? Yeah. I mean, when I, was, when I was young, we didn't really overlap with his racing career. And, and when I was born, maybe by a year or so. But even from a very young age, you're always aware. Um, we got to go to some lovely places when I was young and, and, and he was sort of either guests or, or a guest rider. And it's, it's impossible to get away from, but it's not something you want to get away from. I'm very proud of it. And, you know, everyone's got a Lester Piggott story. And, and it, it's sort of, it's wonderful for me to hear them as well. It reminds me that he's still remembered and it's nice for him as well, you know. Yeah, everyone, everyone certainly has a lesser figure story, and, and, and that some of them were great, lovely to hear. So with a, the surname Piggott, was it always assumed that you were going to be a jockey? I think so. Even from a young age, everyone said, do you ride, and, and how are you getting on, and do you enjoy it? Um, you know, I was probably afforded the opportunity to race ride um, maybe quicker than, than other people would have done. However, it's six and one half does the other because without meaning to, there, there's always going to be a lot of pressure on you. Yeah. But, I, you know, I didn't think it was a bad thing. I wasn't really in the same boat as every other apprentice. Nobody really knows what they're doing when they start out and, and you're just doing your best. And luckily, the boys in the jocks room over in Ireland were, were terrific and, and very helpful. So, you know, I wasn't really any different to anyone else having their first few rides. We were just doing our best. And were you sort of plonked on a horse when you were still in nappies? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 um, and and never never really taught 
to do anything other than 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 race riding. You know, as soon as you were in a saddle, it was short stirrups and and stand up and ride properly. <laughs> so, whether that was the right thing or the wrong thing to do, uh, you know, that was that was from from day dot. It was this is how you ride. And did you did you do you know, the, this day and age of YouTube and stuff? Did you do your sort of your own research, watching some of your dad's famous rides, or, or did you do you ever talk about it to you? He will talk about it. Um, he wouldn't be the sort of person to, to bring it up himself. But if you ask him, he'd tell you as much as he can about it, you know, and, and you know, watching rides like, you know, I think well, probably biased myself, but watching Royal Academy win the Breeders' Cup is, is, I think, the greatest ride I've ever seen. And the greatest commentary ever. <laughs> it's not bad, is it? It's <laughs> <laughs> the greatest commentary ever. They, they, we'll, we'll talk about, we're coming to talk about you, but of course we had to talk about your dad because everybody remembers Leicester and loves Leicester. But you mentioned Ireland. Now, uh -huh. now you were an apprentice with Tommy Stack and you worked at Ballydoyle. So where's it, why were you in Ireland and not here in Newmarket? It's interesting. I suppose um, when I finished school, I, I went and did my A-levels and probably whilst I was doing my A-levels, when I got my first interest in bloodstock, I was doing a lot of work at Tattersall's. Uh, I realised I could make more money there than I could go to school, so I thought this would be a great idea. I'll, I'll spend as much time at Tats as I can. Um, and once I finished school, I got a job at Coolmore with the yearlings, doing yearling prep, which was a great opportunity from Mr Shanahan. I was very pleased with it. Straight out of school, I thought this is wonderful. After a few months there, between him and I and, and Aidan as well, we said, look, maybe you should go across and, and sit on a few over at Ballydoyle. And I mean, geez, to, to sit on such incredible, incredibly well-bred horses, you know, day after day and, and ride the same gallops as my father rode such wonderful horses on, it's an opportunity you, you can't turn down. Uh, and that, that's how I ended up on the riding side of things. But I suppose my first foray into going over to Ireland was, was because of, of Coolmore being over there. I tell you what, I read uh, Horse Trader, great book, and, and uh, as soon as I finished that, it's about Robert Sangster and, and how it was all started off there, and I thought, oh, I've, got, I've got to go in, I've got to go, I've got to go see this place. That's impossible to get that book there, isn't it? I've tried to get that. Very difficult. Very difficult. I'm um, just going back, so I'm interested there, so excuse my ignorance, but what, it, what would be yearling prep? So yearling prep's when we take the horses that are one year old and we bring them in from the field say June time or maybe maybe a little bit later and give them about two months of lunging time on the walker and and basically day-to-day -day care to muscle them up and get good condition on them so that we can then take them to the sales in September or October and they're in tip-top prep uh, tip-top order and, and hopefully make as much money as possible Right, okay. So then you, you came back from Ireland, or did you, um, or were you working with Willie Haggis and Charlie Appleby before you went to Ireland? I did a little bit when I was about sort of 12 years old. I used to ride the hack for, for Willie um, with the family connection there. He's married to my, to my half-sister, so they were, they were always good to me. And, and yeah, coming back to Newmarket was, was fun. And again, riding, riding for William, he's doing so well now. He, he's, they've got so many horses and, and, and equally Charlie. People, not many people know, but Charlie used to work for Leicester when, when he was a trainer. He was, uh, he was an assistant trainer to him when he trained on Hamilton Road. So it was nice to sort of go full circle and go back and, and ride a few for him. Again, very well-bred and, and talented horses. Yeah, now, um, you travel a lot now, we'll get into that later. You also worked in Dubai? That's right, yeah, Charlie, uh, 
Charlie was kind enough to, to take me over to Dubai for six months. Uh, just uh, he takes, at that time it was about 30 horses and about six people. We would go over there and there was a private track in the desert. Saeed would do the same. Uh, I mean, for, for a young lad, an incredible opportunity to go out to Dubai. And, um, and I think Lester was, was proud of me for, for traveling and, and making the most of being a work rider and, and sort of spreading my rings. And actually, I, it wasn't long after I got back that I said to Charlie, I said, look, I, I need to keep going. So I then ended up going to Australia for Gay Waterhouse only a couple of months later, which again, the job is uh, a hard job, you know, long hours, you've got to love it, but you're afforded this opportunity to travel and, and you know, not many jobs in the world where you can just sort of hop across the world at, at a week's notice and, and have a job off the bat. It's interesting because a lot of a lot of normal kids sort of go off backpacking and end up on Bondi, but the racing people, they nearly all seem to gravitate to Gay Waterhouse. And she <laughs> must take a lot of, uh, you know, young people on their sort of version of, of, of a gap year or whatever. A, hu a huge number, huge number. And actually even people that don't have horse experience and are on their gap year still end up sort of working in the stables with Gay. So it's... it's She's great for people like that. It's almost a rite of passage. You go to Australia and you work for Gay for a bit. And you work for a few other Aussie trainers. I as did. Well? Yeah, yeah. I worked for Archie Alexander because he was he was a head man. He was running a yard at Ballydore when I was there, and he was he's now got a lot of horses down in Oz. Um, for McAvoy in Adelaide, and for who else? Oh, around a few places. I was quite quite lucky and actually developed. Uh, a love of the of the Aussie sales whilst I was down there through Johnny McKeever. It's it's such a vibrant market down there, and so I, I just went once and and fell in love with it. So it's, it's very easy to. It's on the Gold Coast, and not a bad not a bad spot really. Yeah. Now, um, you you did ride in some races. Uh -huh. When we first met, we met at the Derby Awards, and you were telling me about your first ride. That's right. So can you not keep it uh, just me and you? Can you tell everybody about your your first ride over in uh, over in Ireland? Yeah, no. Obviously, I was, you know, absolutely panicking like anyone is for their first ride. You know, a lot of lot of. Was it 2013? I suppose it would have been now. Yeah, yeah. It was at Killarney Racecourse. Uh, there was a, you know plenty of publicity going on around it, but I mean, really, I was no different to any other kid having their first ride, and. and in, in sort of true Irish form, all the, all the sort of, tra I was riding for Tommy Stack and they, he said, you know, just, just like anyone else, just get round. I think maybe the punters thought, thought otherwise. They thought maybe they were trying to start me off with a winner. And uh, I think the horse went from about 12 to one at the start of the day into favorite, which none of us could quite believe. And in fact, we didn't even know until I pulled up that we were favorite. Well, it didn't pile on the pressure before you got in the stalls, and they didn't—they didn't say you're going to win this. Or no, no. And speaking of the stalls, guy, it was—it was a bit funny. They—they they put a blindfold on the horse, and I'd never been through the stalls with a blindfold on before. So my my only uh, instructions was when you get put in the stalls, pull the blindfold off. I thought, wow, this is, this is straightforward enough, isn't it? So they put me in the stalls about sixth of fourteen. And as soon as they closed the back door, I just whipped the blindfold off. And everyone's screaming and shouting, going, what are you doing? What are you doing? I saw what I got told to take the blindfold off before we jump out. <laughs> anyway, luckily, the horse was good as gold. He was really, he was a lovely ride. <laughs> I forget the name. God, I can't remember. Pivotal now. Rock. That's right, Pivotal Rock. He was a good, he was a lovely horse. So your, your, um, your riding career mentored to, was it five in the end? So you decided it wasn't really for you? Just a handful. I was actually, towards the end, I was struggling with the weight a bit. And, uh, you know, I just, I just thought, yeah, I was sort of turning up to races and, and being almost lightheaded with with 
uh, trying to sweat and, and keep my weight down. I just thought, look, this isn't really a viable future for me. Uh, I enjoy the riding and I'll keep on riding, but I'll, I'll, I'll find a different foray into it. And like I said, I was lucky to find the bloodstock ride. Yeah, the coffee and cigars diet for 40 <laughs> years wasn't going to be for you. <laughs> no, admirable though, jeez. So you, um, so when you, by the sound of it, you were doing a fair bit of networking all around the world, even if you didn't realise it, it, with all the stuff you did as, as a fairly young man. That's right, yeah. Like you say, without, without meaning to, I suppose I've probably got a bit of, a bit of nomad in me in the way that I don't like staying in one place for too long. And so I, I accidentally had contacts um, from South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Dubai, America, all around Europe, and just just from going and, and sitting on horses and, and and talking to people, and actually, like you say, it's 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 coming such such use as as an agent. There's there's rarely a horse that you can't find out about by ringing a few people, even other work riders or whatnot. It's uh, it's an incredible network, and I think the racing world is is good like that. You know, there's there's rarely someone that that doesn't want to come and have a chat at the races, at the sales, or or whatnot. So it's um, no, the the, the racing world is is very useful for that. Okay, Jane, you told us that you're um you got an interest in bloodstock when you were sort of at Coolmore and places, and you you sort of loved the sales already. So the, you've decided that riding is not for you, and you've gone straight back into the bloodstock industry. So can you tell us a little bit about how that progressed and who gave you your start and that sort of thing? Sure. I mean, look, it's it's a difficult game to get into uh, as a young man starting out if you haven't got a direct link into it. And so I'd taken a bit of a slap on, on Ramwick uh, in Sydney. I came off one and, and broke a couple bones and I just thought, look, whilst I'm stuck in the office, I'll, I'll send out a load of emails, a load of CVs to as many bloodstock agents as I knew and just said, look, I'll work for you for free. I can, I can ride out in the mornings and, and that'll be grand and that'll keep the money ticking over. But, uh, uh, you know, I just want to learn. And I, I think I sent out 16 emails and I got 15 no's. You know, it's not, there's only so much help you need at the sales and most people are already sorted with assistance and whatnot. And I got one yes from James Delahook of all people. You know, what an, an amazing last occasion, the man who started Jodmont arguably. And, uh, he sent me a flight number to America. He said, if you're on this plane, you can look at some horses for me and you can, you can help me out. And that was really the first person to give me a chance. I mean, I'd done a bit in Australia with the likes of Johnny McKeever and whatnot, but after that, I think James and I did every sale for about two and a half years together. And what an amazing man to learn from, but it takes someone like that to give you your first opportunity, someone to go out of their way and, and I'm incredibly grateful for it. And how quickly did you have to pack your bag? Ooh, I, yeah, I had a, just well, I was from Australia, so I didn't have much money either. So I, had, I went via Sri Lanka, Hong Kong, Moscow, London, Keeneland. Or oh, there was somewhere in between, probably Charlotte. So it was, it was yeah, the bag cost more than I did to get there. <laughs> so so you, you were basically then, you, you offered your services and you were learning on the job. Do you think that's the only way to do it? Yeah, yeah. I mean... Looking at looking at thousands upon thousands of horses every year is the only way you 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 start to understand the way around it. But you can do other things like sitting in the ring and, and trying to estimate uh, prices and whatnot. But really, being out there and just looking at horses is is the only way. Asking questions, ask as many questions as possible, and 
having someone that like James, who's kind enough to, to spend their time and, and whilst they're doing their job, explain a few things to you because it's all well and good following someone around, but if they don't answer your questions or tell you what they're looking for, you, you don't learn. But to learn from someone like that was, was wonderful. And, and like I said, I was eternally grateful to him. He, he looks at a horse in a very specific manner. And if you look at all the Jogmont horses, they all look all like, they all look like that because <laughs> he bought all their parents. <laughs> so what was, it, what was it originally that attracted you to the blood? Was it the fascination of pedigrees? Was it the excitement of going to the auctions? Was it just the, the not knowing how things are going to turn out? What was it that, because you're obviously passionate about it, what was it that you know, got you? Sure, I mean, there's something special about a, a sales day at Tattersall's. Uh, as you can say, we're, we're here in my house and we're about 100 metres away from the sales room. It's, uh, the, the place is electric. Uh, so I really enjoy that. Leicester had a bit of, bit of breeding, uh, so a few mares that he was breeding from. And so I'd had a little bit of insight into it from that. Uh, but my real insight would have come when I started working for Ted Vow and, and just thought, you know, this is a way I can be involved in the industry. Uh, and I can still do a bit of riding, but without being a jockey. And, and you know, I can sort of, it's, it's interesting for Lester as well in the same way. He, he really enjoys watching the sales. He's, he watches everything from his home and, and looks through all the lists. It's, uh, you know, you can ask for his advice as well, which is wonderful. Do you get the odd phone call giving you, you know, sort of pointing you in the right yeah, direction? What the hell were you doing there? You know, what, what, what have you been <laughs> in on that for? <laughs> <laughs> so when, what was the most valuable piece of advice that you were ever given when you were gleaning all this information and learning your trade? Uh, it, was the, the, it was the first day I ever looked at horses for James Delahook in America. Probably the 15th horse we looked at. I'll never forget it. Big rangy filly got bought out. Book one, Keeneland. And James said to me, right, Jamie, what's wrong with this horse? And I said, what? have a little bit more depth here maybe slightly straight through its hocks he said nope there is nothing wrong with this horse he said stop looking for what you don't like and look for what you do like and I, I've never forgotten that if you look at a hundred and it could be raining and you be, be in a bit of a bad mood and you just got to remind yourself stop looking for what you look stop looking for problems and start looking for what you like in a horse Okay, so when did you start looking for yourself? When did you actually go out on your own as Jamie Piggott Bloodstock? So about three years ago, I set up the company. Uh, I started it up as pin hooking. Which we'll talk about in a bit. And I got an introduction through James to Nigel Tinkler, who was, he said to me, look, go and, uh, go and have a look at a few of the horses in training for me. Actually, interestingly, I, I only had one client in the world. I was only just starting out and <laughs> he's just taken all his horses away from Nigel. <laughs> I didn't ask why or anything, but I thought this isn't great. I've only got one client and I, and I, this, is, this is a bit sort of walking on the edge. Anyway, we went and, and I did a list for Nigel and we bought two horses off there, a couple of two-year-old colts that we then gelded. They were one from Joseph, one from Kevin Ryan. And a couple of days later, Nigel rang me up and he said, uh, any chance you can sell the... Uh, Sell the one from Kevin's to your to your client. I was like, Bloody hell, you know, he's just taking all his horses away. Is this a good idea? And I, I went, he went for it, and then ended up 
putting those horses back with Nike. And actually, we've worked together again. That was probably that was three years ago, and we, we've done every sale of since. So we get on really well. And look, he, I think he appreciates the help that I afford him, and and I appreciate that probably that first year I was learning from him as much as as much as he I was helping him. But uh, he's, a, he's a good man and we get on really well. well you've, you've got off to a flyer because if my information is right, you were the leading buyer of Breeze Up horses in the Southern Hemisphere for 2019. That's right, yeah. We got um, some some nice investment and whilst I was down there, I set, set up another company down there. Through that investment, we were buying two-year-olds and yearlings. We spent, spent a fair few quid and their sort of main aim was to go into training in Australia with the hopes of them getting to Hong Kong as an export. And so they've gone quite well. I think two or three of them have, have made it up to Hong Kong. Um, some of the, I think most of them have won races. They've done well. And again, I, I got the chance to, and I like buying Breeze Up horses, you know, because, because they're a little bit older, but I got the chance to then go and ride them all in Australia and sit on them one after the other. It was a long, it was a long morning, but uh, yeah, it was, it was a really nice opportunity to have a feel of them all. And um, can you tell us for the uninitiated and uninitiated, which is me included, can you just go into a bit of detail about what breeze up is and how it compares to to just leading the horse around the, you know, what what is sure. the? Yeah, so if we buy yearlings in in October time, they'll total turn two in January, and we'll breeze them from April, May, June, and so breezing is riding the horse over two furlongs and giving it a nice squeeze. We time the horses and judge them on their movement, judge them on their action, and then you know, judge them on, on what we'd usually judge them on as yearlings, so their, their physical confirmation and how they stand up afterwards. Um, there is three or four breeze-ups in England each year, and you know, you're looking at a horse that's slightly older and, and you're watching it breeze, so you know, really, you're, you're trying to lessen the risk that, that you would do when you're trying to buy yearlings. Okay. The other thing is, is you can, in some cases, have a sit on them beforehand whilst they're in training to be a breeze-up horse. So it's, I think it suits my MO because, you know, I'm looking for a racehorse and I can sit on a racehorse rather than um, buying as the major volume of horses as yearlings. It, it's something that, has always stood out to me as, as a good opportunity. Okay, now you must have one of those passports that's got about 100 pages in because you, it says you, you go to Ireland, France, America, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and Hong Kong to auctions. Yeah. Is it all done in person? You don't just get the zoom out and have a look? No, no. It's funny, you, you know, given COVID and whatnot, they, so much of it is online and, and you can you can get so much information about the horses online, which is, I think is important and, and, and is, a, is a good facility to have. However, there's nothing quite like looking at a horse in person. And uh, you, you can't really do it on a, on a computer, all of it. So the travel, be it a good thing or a bad thing, I, I really enjoy it. And I think it's a, it's a real perk of the job going around and, and, and seeing all these places. Everyone does everything a little bit differently, but it's at the end of the day, you're, you're looking at the same product. Do you, do you get attached to any of those that you sell? Or not attached, but do you sort of think, oh, that so-and-so's running in Hong Kong, I'll stick a telly on and see how it does? Or does it, once the deal's done, you, you no, move no, on? No, 100%. Especially the ones you've sat on and ridden, 100%. You know, uh, and, and even siblings of them. 
There's a, we, we bought a horse for Nigel in the yearling sales that uh, I, rode, I rode his brother for, no, her brother for Gabe Waterhouse in Australia before he ran in the Melbourne Cup. And so that was just a sort of an added, an added perk to, to, to this horse and, and it really sort of sprung off the page. So I'll, I'll always be looking out for her and yeah, you, you put things in the tracker and, and, and you always keep an eye on them. It's nice. It's, it's again, it's, I think it's a nice part of the job just to, to know what's going on. I mean, Lester had a horse running in um, Hong Kong that he bred this morning. So we, we've got to keep an eye out for them. All right, Jamie, now you've talked about, you've got the added thing that you, you sit on the horses and you get to know the horses, which is a, a sort of a bit of a unique thing that you offer. You've got a good eye for a horse. You've learned from the best about what to look for. But these days, as with a lot of things, um, tell us about biomechanical analysis of thoroughbreds. Is that something that you offer? Tell us what that is. That's right. So it's an interesting concept uh, that's slowly coming into use. It's something that I was offered at, when it was quite a new uh, proposition. What we do is take a confirmation photo of a horse and in the most basic sense, you draw lines on it. So from the point of the hip down the gas skin, you, you work out the depth of the horse, the length of each bone. And then the way the computer program was set up was to do this on lots and lots and lots of confirmation pictures and then see how the horses run and to see if there was any alignment in those results so that then once you've got a big enough sample group and some good correlations we could then move on and and apply it to horses at a young age and try and just get a bit of an edge you know it's it's not perfect you've still got to use your eye but uh, it's just, a, it's an added string to your bow. Have you got, a, is there a perfect confirmation that you're looking for? There is, 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 there, is there one? There is, yeah, yeah. There's only one or two A-stars that have ever pinged up and we, we've analysed quite a lot of horses. Um, I use a lad in South Africa, it's called Bio, BioCal Analysis. Uh, and so he, he does a really good job and actually rings me up and says, look, this one's a bit special every now and then. So uh, yeah, we certainly keep an eye out for them if, if we can afford them. Is it um? Is it like commercially available? Is it just to you? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It'd Anyone be punters picking their ears up at this because you know that sounds like a sort of another tool for uh, for backing horses as well. Wouldn't be out of the question at all. And and like I say, given the fact that there's so much information on the sales websites, you could take a confirmation picture of, of most horses quite easily. Yeah, and so then the more the more data you get over the years, the more better it becomes. Yeah, exactly. better it becomes. Yeah. Um. So the work of a bloodstock agent. How much of it is done prior to the sales? You have to do a fair bit of, of we call it catalogue prep. So we basically go through the catalogue and, and add in all the information that isn't already in there, such as the ratings of the dam, the ratings of the siblings, the distances they got. So that if you're then looking at something and you're thinking, yeah, okay, the, 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 the sire was a sprinter, but this looks like a stayer. And then you see that all the brothers and sisters were stayers and the dam, you go, well, actually, that's fine. That makes sense. You know, we, we can kick on with this. And also, gives an idea of, of the, the class of the horse, again, if the brothers and sisters are uh, a bit moderate. But you, you know, especially with pin-hooking horses, we, we have to look as far into the pedigree as possible. You're, everyone's looking for something that everyone else hasn't spotted. Yeah. 
Um, and so, yeah, you, you have to do a fair bit of work before the sales because during a sales day, you simply don't have time to be going through, uh, trawling through pedigrees when, when you, you better have it all done beforehand. Okay, so do you have clients that say, right, Jamie, is 10 million quid, go and buy me some horses, or do you take a punt and buy them hoping you can sell them on, or is it a mixture of both? Or? Um, definitely a mixture, definitely a mixture. Um, so with, a, with established trainers and whatnot, we might buy horses, we call it buying them on spec, where we don't have an owner for them, but we'll wait for someone to come along and say, look, actually that horse will suit me fine and I'll take that or I'll take a share of it. And then obviously there's, there's the other way where someone will approach you and say, I'd like you to source me a horse, be it a horse in training for maybe for export or, or be it a yearling or, or a breeze up horse. And they'll say, look, this is what we're looking for. This is the budget. See how you get on. How often do you go through the catalogues everything looks right, the background adds up, the breeding, everything, you go to the sales, you see the horse and you immediately go, nah. Yeah, horribly often. Yeah, it's, it's very, uh, it can be very depressing. You go, this is, this will fit the bill, this will be right. But luckily there's there's a, usually enough horses there that, that there'll always be one or two that, that fit the bill on both fronts. I was, I was told by a, a character, a, a jumps trainer, oh, a, a trainer that, um, Spotting a good horse is a bit like spotting a pretty girl. You know immediately. You seriously think, that's yeah. a good one. Is that how it works? Do you need a special a trained eye or, or for somebody like you, is that natural as seeing a pretty girl walking down the street? I suppose when I first started out, I wouldn't have spotted it. Because again, like, like Della Hook said, you, you're sort of looking for problems. However, uh, I'd call it presence. If, if you look at a, a hundred horses and you're getting a bit tired and going, oh, you know, Looked at, I haven't seen many that's really sprung out of me and then one comes out of the box you know within 10 seconds that it's a bit special and you can instantly forgive any of its faults um, yeah if, if one's got presence you know very very quickly and that it's a bit special and then you just got a fingers crossed you can afford it okay now, I shouldn't really say this but you know like women can, can looks alone put you away on occasion oh yeah 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 unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> Right. Now, do, do you only concentrate on the high end, the top end of the market, or do you still hang around for the sort of second book and look look for bargains? Oh, of course. I think I think uh, at Tattersalls this year we bought a horse in in every single book from book one through to book four. Went out to the the um, the October sales in France, which are the sort of secondary sales, and and spent a lot of money there. So you never know where you're going to find a horse that'll fit the bill. Uh, it's important to once you have an order to keep your keep your mind open as to what you can what you can fill it with but if you're not at the sale then then there's always something that, that can slip through the net and you mentioned that people have a type uh -huh. so do you have a type what do what do you look for what's your you know do you, do you have like a little uh, way of looking at something first and then i suppose i i my type is developed from the people i learned from so i wouldn't be just like james or just like mckee or just like whoever they would be a mixture of what everything. The other way of doing it is that I make lists for different trainers, but my list for one trainer would be completely different to my list for another, because you learn quite quickly what each one is looking for to do with their taste and also the way they train. Um, you know, there's a big difference between trainers that want an early two-year-old type and, and, and ones that will give a horse a bit of time and, and you can't be offering them the same horse because it just simply won't work for one of them. And these days, if you if you spotted something that didn't match up with your biomechanical analysis, uh -huh. would that definitely be a line for it now, regardless of what you thought when you saw it, your gut instinct? 
you know, I think at the end of the day, I've, like I say, he's looked at so many horses and doubled back on so many through over the years that that really your 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 initial impact of the horse on your own eye is the most important thing. We like, we use things like the biomechanical analysis as as an added bonus, uh, but at the end of the day, I don't think there's any any way around looking at just thousands and thousands of horses and, and seeing how they turn out. Okay, and do bloodlines go in and out of fashion, or is it always like a blue chip bloodline that will be? It's always going to be a fairly safe bet, a bit like the stock market with a, a major firm. There certainly are safe bets. Uh, you know, sort of like things like the first season sire market is always an interesting one, especially you know if if, if we're buying babies and, and trying to buy them to sell again. Uh, but you've got to buy for the fashion, not so much the safe bet, because you've got to then sell the horse on again. You know, so there's different ways of looking at it. If you're looking to buy a racehorse, maybe you, you want to go for the safe bet, but maybe you want to go for a first season sire that you don't know much about that could turn out to be a bit of a bargain. So there, yeah, there, there are bloodlines that will never go away and they do certainly come out of fashion. It's, it's, it's a really interesting thing to, to look through the results and see what's, what's changing. And it, it changes fast, it changes season to season. It, people can go off a horse very quickly, off a stallion. Okay, you talked about babies, so we'll get on to pin hooking. Now, as far as my limited knowledge goes, pin hooking is young horses. That's right. Um, which is an even more precarious investment, a bit more of a punt. This only what I've, you know, sort of looked at and found out. But it, first of all, tell us if that's right, and then can you tell us what you're looking for in such young horses? Is it the same sort of theory? So we run it like uh, like an investment fund, almost like you can invest in a in a in a, in a startup company and and. But in, in the way we do it, we invest in a handful of them. So some, you know, we're looking for, like I say, fashion on the page. There are siblings that might get a nice update for the page, improve the pedigree. And then finally, the horse physically in itself, we, we buy foal to yearling mainly. You've got to look at the foal and think, how's this going to look in nine months? You know, are people going to want to buy it? And, uh, Say we buy sort of 10 to do that with, you might have, you know, two or three might go the wrong way, be it confirmational problems or the pedigree might go a bit flat over the course of the year. Uh, you might break even on a few and then you, you're going to look for the ones that are going to make the profit to carry the fund and, and you know, basically from an investment fund, try and increase your, your profit margin. Okay. Do you get excited watching the races like when Frankel appeared? Yeah. You suddenly think, God. God, I can't wait for that one to start producing, you know. Oh, without, without a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. I was, I was there for his guineas and, and God, it was a long time ago now, but you, you never forget it. It's, it. it's ingrained in your mind. Was there anything in the last season that you, uh, that, that perked your interest? For so, so, Sires yeah. or Runners? Uh, for Sires, we bought some nice pin hooks by Magna Grecia, 10 Sovereigns. I think uh, things that are going to come and run the Sioux Nations will go well. Saxon Warriors will go well. They they look you know straightforward. Uh, you know, the Sioux Nations are very early horses, but he, I think in the first season sire market he's a bit short. Okay, now the the bloodstock industry appears to stay fairly buoyant even in torrid times like we've had recently. Um, do you, do you have any plans to get involved with breeding yourself? We do already. I don't do too much on the breeding side, but uh, I'd certainly it's something you keep an in, keep an eye and keep an interest in. Like I say, you've got to you've got to know what you're looking at with the sires. Um, 
but you know the people that look into into the pedigrees and, and do matings for you know matching mares to, to their stallions it's a really interesting job and it, it's something that I'd say again you, you never stop learning it must be it must be gripping it's something that I've only d sort of dipped my toe into sourcing uh, nominations for mares but uh, no something something you, you you pick it up anyway whilst doing everything else yeah, and you're, so you're finally, I mean, you're flying at the moment. You're a relatively young man. Um, you. What plans have you got for the next? <laughs> you know, for the next any, you know, what 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 are your immediate sort of um, goals? Well, we'll keep, uh, you know, like like uh, like any sort of self-employed person, we're all trying to keep our head above water, aren't we? But uh, no, look, the the exporting to Hong Kong, to America, to Australia is going well. As you build a client base, people trust you more with you know, decent chunks of money to find a racehorse. Uh, and, and the European bloodstock is, is of such high quality that you know, they, they can find value by shopping here, even with two and three year olds that have got form. The other thing is more, more and more people are coming to, to, to look for yearlings. And, and, and I've started up doing a few syndicates as well, which I think is a, is a really exciting thing to do. Um, it's worked so well in Australia and the syndicate market. I think it's the way forward. You mean syndicates as in racehorses? That's or, right, yeah. yeah so yeah. where can people find out about that? Or is it is it a closed shop for people that you know? No, no, no. There's always a, there's always a few shares here and there in, in, in things that we've picked up at the yearling sales. So we've got a, a really exciting new bay up with Nigel at the moment with a, a, only a little bit left in it. But there, there is a little bit left. But Leicester's got some of and uh, some really some really fun people. So... I think that's the most important thing is as an owner you've got to enjoy yourself haven't you and if you get to do it with your pals and not spend too much cash on it then then all the better isn't it you know it gets many people involved absolutely so what we do we'll put the um we'll put the website on the oh thank you on the information anyway jamie pickett it's been a pleasure thank you very much thank you new betting people interviews are published every week at star sports exclusive interviews with the key people from the world of sports betting. Check out our full library of interviews at starsportsbet.co.uk. BeGambleAware.org. Over 18 only.